Hey all. So I had so much fun doing the retrospective on Star Trek The Next Generation Season 6 that I thought it would be a lot of fun to go ahead and discuss Season 2. So we've already taken a look at the penultimate season of Next Generation, and now it's time to look at sort of after the first season when they went through a lot of their growing pains, went through a lot of very, very awkward stories that for the most part were leftover scripts from Star Trek Phase 2 and the original series of Star Trek. So Star Trek Season 2 itself is an entirely interesting, different kind of project from what you see in later seasons. And it's also unique in that Gene Roddenberry was still pulling a lot of weight in the production at the time because this was, of course, before his death. So it's important that we talk about different aspects taking place behind the scenes. So this particular season saw Maurice Hurley promoted to head writer after Robert Lewin left. And, of course, executive producer Rick Berman was still very much a force on all of this. This was our season where we had Worf now permanently in place as the uh, chief of security, rather than the first season's Tasha Yar. This was a very different season than we thought we were originally going to get back when season one first started up. We, it was still very much up in the air, and a lot of writers were writing very new episodes, including Tracy Torme. Now, of course, Tracy Torme is the son of Mel Torme, and went on to create the series Sliders. So it's important to note what exactly went on behind the scenes at Star Trek The Next Generation that caused Tracy Torme to leave. The new head writer, Maurice Hurley, objected to violent and gory scenes in the first season episode, Conspiracy. If you remember that particular episode, that's the episode where the little bugs crawl inside some uh, Federation officers' mouths and basically take them over, basically like the Puppet Masters. And it was a preliminary episode to, in concept to what eventually became the Borg. So it's important to note all of this. And because of that objection to the violence and gore, which really was saved very minimally for that particular episode, uh, the, the note in production that you could look at is like, okay, well, at one point, this one officer's skin peels away from the phaser firing at him, and then uh, the whole head explodes uh, and there's this ugly uh, blue-screened-in puppet that is uh, like the mother parasite or symbiote that's in the belly of this Federation officer. So it's a genuinely gruesome, gory scene, and it's understandable, but it's also unlike anything else that you've got in the rest of the first season. So later, Hurley also modified Torme's scripts for The Royale, which is actually a pretty good episode, especially in concept, as well as Manhunt, which itself was also a really good episode. And when I say a good episode, I mean Manhunt was good in that it wasn't very good. It was kind of tongue-in-cheek and cringe, because 
literally what happens is that um, Luxana Troy gets her libido increased several times what it would be normally, and she's on the hunt for a man. So yeah, it's it's a pretty cringeworthy episode, but we'll get into that in a bit. Anyway, so after these rewrites, Torme elected to be credited under a pseudonym, and it just kind of carried on from there. So it's unfortunate, but the entire season saw a lot of this kind of treatment for the writers, a lot of disrespect for the writers, which is not a good move because then you wind up with some writers leaving, as is the case with the next story that I need to talk about, which is a lost story called Blood and Fire. This is an episode written by David Gerald, who most notably wrote The Trouble with Tribbles, one of the most beloved episodes of the original series. It was so beloved that when Deep Space Nine had to choose a Star Trek episode to go back and insert the different DS9 characters into, they chose The Trouble with Tribbles because they could have so much fun with it, both from the writing standpoint and the actor's standpoint, and the special effects standpoint. That that episode was actually really remarkable for uh, the different special effects that they took with lighting, uniforms, uh, the different camera effects that they used in order to perfectly simulate the original series look. So, what was Blood and Fire about? Essentially, it was an episode that was going to feature some homosexual characters, and Roddenberry was okay with that aspect. But then it also was going to deal with a virus. It was going to deal with a virus that traveled, and that was going to be analogous to AIDS. So yeah, therein lies the problem. And there was speculation that producers didn't like it. There was speculation about all of it. In the end, what it comes down to in a lot of ways was Paramount apparently stepped in and said, kids won't like it. It'll be upsetting. It'll be confusing. And it's like, except for all the gay kids out there, except, you know, we've, you know, because this is uh, being filmed and, and released in 88, 89. So this is the height of the AIDS crisis. We've spent years at this point not talking about AIDS and ignoring it and calling it the gay plague and pretending like you can catch it from everything from just touching a person to swimming in a swimming pool with them, a chlorinated swimming pool. We bothered to never fund research on it because the conservatives thought that it would just wipe out the gays. But it very quickly made its way over to heterosexuals and became a source of stigma for anyone who caught it who was straight. Yeah. So Blood and Fire was a story that was obviously ahead of its time, and a lot of people tried to just say, oh, well, it just wasn't a very good script. And I think that's too much of a cop-out. I think that if you have a concept for a story and you're starting out from a good enough place, you can work on a script and you can punch it up. God knows, I have reworked several different stories from movies and TV shows where I didn't like the episode and I was able to think of a way that you could very easily salvage it. 
So with that said, let's actually get into season two of Star Trek The Next Generation. So episode one of this season is one that I referenced in my season six review, one that I absolutely hate, one that the writing credits go to Jaron Summers, John Povel, and Maurice Hurley. It's called The Child. This particular episode introduces Dr. Pulaski, who was there apparently because Gates McFadden got pregnant and didn't want to lose the child, and so they had to give her like a hiatus from the show or something. I don't know. But in the meantime, it also features one of my favorite characters, Geordi LaForge, and they're going to be transporting some dangerous plague specimens. But the main plot of the show is that Deanna Troy gets impregnated by a non-corporeal alien, gives birth in a matter of days, without pain, mind you, and then the child grows and lives life very quickly and then transcends physical form once again to return back to the non-corporeal alien species that it came from. Yeah. It's awkward, it's cringe, and one of the reasons why I especially hated it was because it talked about in in vivid detail exactly why the writers and producers especially did not understand how to write for women. It is just a horrible episode. It has virtually no point to it. We could have had blood and fire in place of this one, and instead we get the mysterious pregnancy plot. Because women are just walking uteruses that make babies, right? Okay, well anyway, let's move on. The next episode is where silence has lease, and this one feels a lot like it's taken from Star Trek Phase 2. The episode occurs when the Enterprise becomes trapped in a spatial phenomenon, and various strange things start happening to the crew. They beam aboard a sister ship, which helps because then you don't have to bother filming another model, and things on the ship don't make sense. They beam aboard, they're in the middle of a corridor, and then they walk through a door and they're on the bridge. Then they walk through the door of the bridge and go onto another bridge. And it keeps going like that in a loop. So it doesn't make sense and is very frustrating to Worf in particular when he sees Riker in this mysterious location. Is It's like, is this the same bridge? Is that the same Riker? What the heck's going on here? And he responds, no, this is wrong. One Riker, one bridge. It's really, yeah, not exactly great acting from Michael Dorn there. But you can't blame him for the bad writing at that point. He's doing his best with this crap. Anyway, uh, so it turns out that there's a bizarre space entity that's basically just, it, it makes itself into a face that looks vaguely human so that it can communicate with Picard and the rest of the human and humanoid crew. And essentially, it's basically treating them like lab rats and said, oh, don't worry, at most we might kill off two-thirds of your crew or something like that, 
And, you know, but, you know, plenty of you will make it out alive. It's perfectly fine. The episode is actually, if anything, a really great uh, point about experimenting with lab animals and not doing anything that would cause them distress or result in their deaths. So it has this really good moral that you can take away from it, and it has a really interesting mystery element to it that's very, very dark and spooky. And the fact that it premiered in late November instead of late October really ticks me off because it would have made a great Halloween episode. Okay, so the next episode, Elementary Dear Data, sees Commander Data on the holodeck pretending to be Sherlock Holmes. LaForge, rather foolishly, decides to ask the computer to program a villain capable of defeating Data. Not Holmes, Data. So this creates Professor Moriarty, who doesn't get called back until season six, as mentioned in the previous review. And it's fantastic. It's genuinely a well-done episode that takes the concept of the holodeck and just stretches it out from a basic sci-fi concept into something a little bit more fantastic. And it winds up being pretty darn good overall. I genuinely enjoyed it. So I think that that's one that definitely has to go up there as one of the better episodes for season two. The title alone is really cute. Although it should be elementary, my dear LaForge. All right. So the next episode is definitely one that I remember called The Outrageous Okana. Or Okana, however you want to pronounce it. When I first heard it, I thought his name was O'Connor, which might have been in one of the early drafts. Anyway. So... Okana is basically a space rogue. He's basically your Han Solo type. And he's actually played by the lead actor from The Rocketeer. Not even kidding you. And it's amazing that these are really the only two roles that I've ever seen the guy in. He's pretty good in his roles and should have gotten more leads in different ways, whether it was a romantic comedy or something. My only guess is that maybe he was difficult to work with, and that might have been why he didn't get as many roles. Anyway, so he's very flamboyant. He's got a ponytail. He's got long hair at the front and everything, so he, he looks very rakish and everything with his uh, vest and his poofy shirt and everything. Sort of like a uh, space-age swashbuckler, if you will. And... In this episode, the Enterprise crew get caught up in an intrigue surrounding him where he's involved in a star-crossed romance between two young people. And it's assumed that he got a, basically for the intents of our story, princess pregnant. And naturally, the father is completely outraged and wants him dead. Meanwhile, the other side in this planetary system wants him for supposedly stealing a precious treasure of theirs. And then it all gets resolved very easily in a very, uh, you know, convenient way 
that I think you can probably see coming. But as it is, it's a fun little episode. It definitely is a lot more kid-friendly than, say, where Silence has Lease, where that one is very scary. So The Outrageous Okana definitely is one where it can be kind of a guilty pleasure. And the, the story isn't too hard. I remember liking it as a kid, especially. The next episode, on the other hand, Loud as a Whisper. Oh my god. Basically, this is the disability episode that's supposed to get the show a Humanitas Award. And it's about a deaf telepathic ambassador that Troy has to help out because she's empathic and can communicate relatively well with telepaths. But when the deaf telepath lands on the planet and begins speaking with his three different interpreters, the other party gets confused by this and doesn't understand that these are his interpreters and he's left alone unable to speak. So this means that Troy then has to interpret his thoughts for him. It's an okay episode at best, but it mostly focuses on the limitations of a person with a disability and that's where the problem is. That's why it really wasn't um, recognized as an empowering story about disability. An empowering story about disability would be featured much later on, but it would only be a temporary disability that didn't really last. You already had a great character with a permanent disability in Geordie LaForge, and there were better stories that involved him that didn't make it seem like he was weak or worse off. It was just a limitation that he had learned to deal with. So as a result, I really don't recommend Loud as a Whisper as one you should check out. Our next episode is The Schizoid Man. And it's interesting as having several different writing credits. The story is by Richard Manning and Hans Beimler. But the teleplay is by Tracy Torme. Now the actual story takes place when Dr. Ira Graves, played by William Morgan Shepard, who you'll recognize from everything because he's a great character actor, he decides to try and cheat death by uploading his memories and personality into Lieutenant Commander Data. So this was an interesting episode that played with the idea of what if you had an artificial intelligence being that could operate independently and basically had a humanoid brain and then someone decided to pirate it and use it. This then results in basically Dr. Graves and Data having to share a body, only nobody's really aware that Dr. Graves has actually taken over Data. So it's a very disturbing episode in, in just the nature of how it works but it's genuinely interesting enough in playing with the concept. It feels like an episode that they probably took from the first season that never got made and bothered to produce it. So it uses the concept of an android, a fully functioning android, basically being this, this new hybrid of a human consciousness essentially immortal, and the moral implications of it. It all comes to a climax when Dr. Graves reveals himself to his wife, 
and says, if you do the same as I do, then we can be together forever. But in the process, he accidentally hurts her, breaking her hands. So he realizes that what he's doing is harmful and that it's not a perfect solution to cheating death. So as a result, I think that this one is good in its moral implications. It's relatively safe for, you know, different age groups. Little kids will appreciate it. I remember mostly finding it a bit of a good intrigue story when I was little and finding Brent Spiner's performance especially interesting. So that's one that I do recommend checking out, even if the plot's a little bit predictable. That was really one of the problems with a lot of early Star Trek uh, The Next Generation episodes was you kind of knew where a lot of them would be going. The next episode is Unnatural Selection, written by John Mason and Mike Gray. In this episode, the Enterprise receives a distress call from the USS Landry, discovering its crew has apparently died of old age. The race is on to solve the mystery before scientists on a research colony suffer the same fate. Now this is one where I actually remember it, and I would often come back to it because it really did make sense as a story. Essentially what happens is a group of scientists on a research colony have gone the eugenics route, which is already banned in the Federation, but they've done it anyway, and they've designed the perfect species of human that's, you know, smart and strong and immune to everything and actually has a very aggressive immune system. Hint, hint. Because what it actually turns out to be is that their immune system goes airborne and acts like a virus attacking anyone that doesn't have a genetic structure like them. So the direct result is that People like Dr. Pulaski and the other scientists begin aging as the antibodies within that system that they take in begin attacking the other human beings that don't have their exact genetic composition. So it's an interesting concept where an antibody could become a virus, in essence, but at the same time, it doesn't quite work that way in reality. You would need direct transmission through blood or saliva. And then the antibodies themselves would need to reproduce regularly. And that requires the use of white blood cells, T cells, that kind of thing. So it wouldn't really work that way in real life with real science. But this is science as magic, which is one of the great problems whenever you get into sci-fi. You should never treat science as magic. It needs to have a certain amount of foundation in reality. In this case, they took a basic concept like human antibodies and said, what if they attacked other human beings? And it's like, well, so what? I, I don't think it would ever do that. You get things like organ rejection, but that's about it. Okay, so the next episode, A Matter of Honor was a story by Wanda M. Height and Gregory Amos and Burton Armas with a teleplay by Burton Armas. 
So in this episode, Commander Riker is assigned to a Klingon vessel via an officer exchange program between the Federation and the Klingon Empire. But the Klingon captain is not very trusting of Riker. So this episode also has a Benzite temporarily assigned to the Enterprise. It, it's very much an episode that focuses on culture shock, clash of cultures, and is pretty well-rounded overall. It involves a little bit of a plot point for Wesley, wherein Wesley actually acts like a rational person. It's generally just a good episode. It, it holds together well. Despite having so many writers attached to it, it genuinely works. I enjoyed it. Um, Riker aboard the Klingon ship has some good scenes that just work. It makes sense. And Riker, especially William Frakes' performance, but the character of Riker himself actually does a really good job in the role that he plays aboard the ship. He understands the Klingons very well. It's just a good, solid episode. And it's worth checking out. So the next episode, Measure of a Man, is one of those that a lot of people really hammer home as one of the better red letter um, capital flag episodes for Star Trek The Next Generation. And it was a groundbreaker at its time, especially for Star Trek, and got a lot of respect from a lot of people because they suddenly perked up, paid attention, and said, what the heck? In this episode, Commander Data is subjected to a trial wherein it's essentially asked, are you a life form that we should respect the rights of? Because the basic premise is that someone from Starfleet wants to dismantle him and see if he can be reproduced by scanning all of his technical aspects and see if they can just make another like him and then another and another and another. It's a beautifully written episode and one of the best scenes takes place between Guinan and Picard and Whoopi Goldberg especially appreciated that particular scene for her character because as a black woman she recognized the importance of being able to pass this message along to Picard regarding the nature of rights and particularly the right to autonomy, the right to decide for yourself what is to be done with you, and the right to decide on whatever happens to others like you. Unfortunately, in Star Trek Picard, they take that entire part of the episode and throw it out the window. I'll let you watch it to find out, but it's genuinely an excellent episode, well worth watching, and it's family-friendly, even though it does get a little bit dry and intellectual. In the next episode, The Dauphin, which I always thought was The Dolphin for some reason, because it, it is spelled almost exactly the same. But The Dauphin has the Enterprise playing host to the young leader of Dalad Four, Celia, played by Jamie Hubbard. And Wesley quickly starts to fancy Celia. But Celia has a very strict and harsh guardian. And in the case of both she and her guardian, 
they harbor a secret. This particular episode is good just as a Wesley Crusher episode, but it's also interesting in that it plays around with the idea of like love at first sight, a little bit of a brooding romance. It works sort of okay. It's not great, but it's okay. If you want to know what happens, go ahead and listen, but otherwise skip ahead a little bit. Basically, the girl and her guardian can turn into monsters. And yeah, that's their that's their secret. Um, it's not really that great a, re- a reveal or anything like that, but yeah. So there. That that's the secret of uh, of Celia and her guardian Anya. So the next episode, Contagion, centers around a distress signal from the USS Yamato leading to a computer virus taking over the Enterprise and causing more and more systems to malfunction. Now, this also involves the Romulans and is centered around an ancient race known as the Iconians. The Iconians have this whole legend built up around them that you don't really find anything more about until much, much, much later in Star Trek Online. But in terms of everything else with regarding the Iconians, they get brought up every now and again in later Trek series and episodes that it's just weird how much they get brought up. But they're supposed to be a dead race that were killed out by other species who were jealous of their levels of technology. So it's genuinely an interesting episode. A lot of it is... uh, plot-based rather than character-based, and that makes a huge difference for the audience because then you can follow around the different characters who you all know by now, and it it just falls together really interestingly by the time you get to the end of things. There is a really good resolution to all of this. It works quite well, and generally the story itself holds together quite nicely. So I would recommend watching this. I won't spoil any element of it for you because it just works very strongly as an episode. And it's one of the reasons why uh, Star Trek Online bothered to call back to it. Our next episode is one that I mentioned earlier called The Royale, written by Tracy Torme. In this episode, they find remnants of a NASA ship that is above the planet of an icy gas giant. But for some strange reason, there is a small amount of breathable atmosphere in a very limited area. So they beam down to this location, which, why would you do that? Why wouldn't you beam down a probe? Okay, anyway, they beam down to this and find the just the front door in a black void of a hotel from the 20th century. And when they try to leave... They can't. Well, there's spoilers from here on out, so you've been warned. Essentially what happens is they solve the mystery and they find a deceased astronaut having sat there and rotted for years. And it turns out that one of the crew had brought with him a copy of a uh, novel that was a cheesy, uh, like film noir kind of story about a hotel uh, 
involving really contrived intrigues and everything, really two-dimensional characters, where basically some foreign investors show up and buy out the hotel as a sort of deus ex machina because the writer couldn't think of a way to resolve all of the intrigues that have been built up in the novel. So one of the ways that this happens is Data can, can easily roll the dice in order to beat the casino at its own system. And by doing this, he's able to basically win more money than the casino is uh, actually worth, let alone the hotel. And they come in as the foreign investors and say, well, we're buying this hotel. And, you know, and that gets them out of the situation. It's a pretty fun episode, but it definitely is one where if you were to tell me that that was from season one, I would believe you because it has all of the same feeling of all of that. Essentially, everyone inside of the hotel is just a two-dimensional construct. The whole reason why it exists is because some alien life that was on the planet found the book, found the crew unconscious, and thought that this was their idea of paradise, constructing the reality from the book and making uh, basically their own personal hell as they can't ever escape this. It takes on sort of a Hotel California kind of vibe at that point because you realize that if you were stuck in a place where you could never escape, you could never feel satisfied, everything was very cheap and two-dimensional, you would really want to get out of there because it's not your world. It's not the world you want to live in, certainly. So... It's an interesting episode because they get to use a hotel set. They get to use a lot of costumes that are just from the prop department. And they only have to have some of the recurring cast there while the rest is all extras and guest cast. So they're able to kind of get away with doing it a bit on the cheap that way. And I think that's one reason why that particular episode got made. But it is interesting when you then look at this episode and then look at... Uh, episodes of like sliders or something and see some of the episodes that Tracy Torme had more of a hand in. The next episode is Time Squared, written by Kurt Michael Benzmiller with a teleplay by head writer Maurice Hurley. This particular episode is extremely confusing. I'm not even kidding you. What happens is they find a shuttle that is already there aboard the ship. It's completely identical. On board is an unconscious Captain Picard. And they're trying to figure out exactly what the heck happened. So it turns out that this particular aspect of it is a bit of a time loop. This Picard comes from a future where the Enterprise gets trapped in a kind of funnel or time warp that when they try to either get out of it or something, they end up blowing up and Picard ends up escaping aboard a shuttle. So they're only able to decipher some of what happens from the recording, from the future version's account of things, even though it's not very coherent. And it basically is as limited a time loop story as you could possibly have. It introduces the idea of the time loop, 
and it introduces the idea for the characters of how do we avoid what we don't know how it's even going to happen you know it's like if we turn around maybe that's when we encounter the anomaly if we keep going forward maybe that's when we encounter the anomaly if we sit still perfectly here maybe that's when the anomaly pops up and then what decision did we make that got us blown up it's your basic predeterminism predestination time loop um, causality conundrum where you're not quite sure how to avoid it and it's one of the reasons why i personally don't believe in fate or predetermination or anything like that i don't find it to be a very promising way to think where it's like oh well you're destined for hell or you're destined for heaven or you're destined for anything like this i generally don't believe in fate as a person simply because i've encountered this kind of thinking way too often in my life and it's better if you just go through things with your best intentions and try to act a little bit cautiously if you think that it's a delicate situation. Otherwise, you're just really sabotaging yourself. The next episode is the Icarus Factor. In this one, Riker meets up with his estranged father, played by character actor Mitchell Ryan. And the father, Kyle Riker, he just wants to know exactly why Riker refused command of his own. And it becomes a bit of an odd question as to exactly why Riker would turn down command of his own ship when he's being offered it. And the answer is plain and simple. He wants to command the Enterprise. You know, he knows that Picard might step down or get promoted to Admiral at some point because he does a phenomenal job. And so he wants command of the ship at some point, someday, because he likes the ship. He likes the crew. He thinks that Picard is a good commander, and Picard has given him enough reign to be able to command on several occasions that it's made him feel confident in his situation. It isn't even a matter of being afraid to move forward. It's just a matter of he likes this particular situation and wants to stay in that position until he can someday command the ship himself. Well, unfortunately, that doesn't work out in the movies, does it? The B-plot for this is that Worf is going through a time in his life when he would normally have a rite of passage that he never got to experience several of them growing up. And it's difficult for him to talk about with the human crew, but eventually they figure out exactly how to help him out. It's a pretty good little story. The resolution between uh, Kyle Riker and Will Riker is really powerful. And it involves uh, Ambo Jitsu, which is this absolutely ridiculous and bizarre sport that I can't even describe, you know, just, just in plain speech without going into too many spoilers. But Basically, this is an interesting episode for examining things from Riker's point of view that challenges us as the audience to understand a little bit more about his history as a person and exactly why he doesn't like his father. The next episode, Pen Pals, is mostly kind of a family-friendly cutesy episode. It involves Data having gone into basically long-distance communication with a child in a pre-warp civilization that is suffering from some really nasty volcanic activity. It's interesting to note 
that the little girl alien is played by Nikki Cox, who would later go on to uh, be one of the lead actors in a show called Unhappily Ever After on UPN. So it's just interesting to note that because she was very, very young in this particular role, and then she grew up into a very beautiful, attractive woman that became kind of a sex icon on that show. And she was a very promising child actress through much of her career leading up to that. So it, it it's just kind of odd to note all of that because that's such an early role for her. And she's under so much makeup. But you can definitely tell it's her from the eyes, the smile, that kind of thing. The story itself is really cute and sweet, and you can tell exactly where it's going to go. But it is a question of the Prime Directive. So because it is a Prime Directive episode, it makes it difficult for some of us in the audience who were younger to sort of understand exactly what was going on with that particular episode. It's just a bit of a challenge because why wouldn't you try and help, you know, a less advanced species? It seems pretty basic from a child's point of view, like mine was, you know, that you would want to help those people, especially if it's a little girl that's all alone. You would want her to survive. But what if you were to just beam her somewhere away from her home and have her appear somewhere else completely different. Well, then word might get around that, oh, this child was saved by a miracle. So what would that lead to culturally? Would that child then become a holy figure in that society? You cannot tell what you would do in terms of all the different consequences and damages if you were to get involved in a less advanced species like that. Okay, so the next episode is Q Who. And in this particular episode, Q from the original first pilot episode, Encounter at Farpoint, drags the Enterprise 7,000 light years away, well beyond Federation space, to meet the Borg. This is the episode that introduces the Borg, and he talks about how they are relentless. When you're all out of fuel, they'll just, you know, you know, they'll chase you until you run out of fuel. They'll hammer you down until all of your weapons and shields are spent. They are an unstoppable force. And even if you are an immovable object, you cannot, you know, do anything but yield to them. So it's a terrifying episode. It's genuinely scary. Um, so I recommend it just because it's, it's amazing. It, it genuinely is one of the more powerful episodes and it leads to so much further down the line. Now, that said, for the concept of the Borg, they do borrow very, very heavily from the Doctor Who monster, the Cybermen. It has to be mentioned because even down to the to the phrase, you know, resistance is futile. Uh, the, the, yeah, so much of the concept, the the little nuances of the of the species, is taken directly from the Cybermen on Doctor Who. So, yeah, I, I don't think that that particular aspect can be ignored. The next episode is Samaritan Snare. And in this particular one, a, a species of aliens basically pretend to be dim-witted, but 
they're actually not that dim-witted. They, they, they aren't stupid, is basically my point. Like, they know enough in terms of how to do everything, but in terms of their overall characters, they've kind of developed a way of exploiting others who take pity on them. They will use more basic language. They'll, um, they'll sound a little bit like they might be mentally um, delayed. And this is really a problem because this particular episode tries to show, like, um, it, it's a bad disability episode because it shows an, a species that has less intellectual capacity as all being basically fat and incompetent. So if you're familiar how I feel about how a lot of media and culture tends to treat fat people and then having an entire species that's basically just fat white guys and they talk like they're they have the mental capacity of children that's a huge problem okay like they talk about things with uh Jordy as if it's like we want to make our ship go you are smart and the impression is exactly that of someone who might have limited mental capacity it's also teaching that people who have limited intellectual ability will basically just exploit other people at their expense and are basically just you know malicious they, they aren't on the up and up and they're just using others that is not a good message so as a result i'm genuinely not a fan of samaritan snare for that reason alone now that said lower decks has actually done justice to the packlids by not showing them necessarily as being completely stupid and everything they'll show them as having their own kind of cunning but even so they are relatively simple and some of that is just culturally learned but they aren't even like in their build on the show the way that they draw them they're not just fat they just have a broad build and this makes a huge difference in terms of how you see them if it was just someone who was short pale fat and didn't really have a lot of mental capacity then you could say okay well that's a dig on fat people that's a dig on uh on the mentally handicapped and you have a real problem here so yeah the entire episode's very cringeworthy and i don't think it's really worth discussing any further just don't watch it it's not worth it the next episode is up the long ladder and this is another one where it's rather cringeworthy You've got an English actor pretending to be a stereotypical Irishman. Yeah. Essentially what happened is they come across remnants from a colony ship that crashed. One of the ships contained some space Luddites, which is really the best way I can describe them, who are very much Irish. And they have so many people and... and they have way too few a number for a diverse group to have actually colonized several decades ago. They would have way more people. But we only see like maybe a dozen or so of this particular 
subgroup of humans. The other group only had about five survivors from their ship crashing on another planet nearby. And they had loads of technology, loads of equipment. The survivors were very smart. And they started cloning themselves. And they have a sizable population entirely made up of clones. Those clones are suffering from essentially a diminishing return on the cloning process, which wouldn't actually happen. Making a copy of a copy when it comes to clones would not result in the clones somehow not being viable. That, that isn't how cloning works, because it's a biological process. But for the purposes of our story, that's how it works. Um, and basically, the solution is one that you can probably see coming a mile away, so I don't think I need to bother with worrying about spoiling it for you. You've got one culture that is technologically backwards and very emotional, but has a lot of biodiversity, and you've got another species that's very advanced and has absolutely no biodiversity. Hmm, how can we work this out? Well, yeah, basically Picard says, you've got a solution right here in front of you that makes it perfect. All you have to do is interbreed. And you'll be able to have plenty of biodiversity. You'll be able to have plenty of people. You can all live in whatever way you see fit where you have a compromise on how you want to live. If you want to farm animals and... Um, and, uh, you know, raise chickens and uh, use spinning wheels to make your clothes, that's great. If you want to have all this advanced scientific technology and art, even if you're relatively uncomfortable with the process of actually mating after so many years of cloning, that's a whole other thing. But it's what you're going to have to do in order to survive. I'm sure that after they left, that they probably went ahead and just started cloning some of the Irish and we're like, there, problem solved. You guys go live over here. Bye. <laughs> it's like, no. It actually starts to appeal to uh, our stereotypical Irishman when the subject is brought up of needing to have like anywhere from three to five wives, each having about three children each. And his daughter, who is basically Maureen O'Hara, only not Maureen O'Hara, but it's Marie, the, the actress is totally channeling Maureen O'Hara. Uh, essentially, uh, she's just ticked off all the time. She's the angry um, Irish woman who has like the layabout drunken father who's you know not good for very much. Meanwhile, she's got to take care of the animals, the children and everything. And she's not happy because it's like, well, you know, who's got to raise all these children? Who's and, you know, none of you have to give birth. You're making all these decisions for us and not involving us in it. So it's a fair point. Um, you know, you could always have in vitro fertilization. You could have um, you could actually have the children grown in the cloning tanks instead. They wouldn't need to be full grown, but they, you know, they could they could be cloned essentially from the genetic material since you have the cloning base. I mean it would work and you'd have plenty of genetic diversity within a number of generations. You just have to 
have an incredibly large sector of your population entirely devoted to childcare. Which, in reality, if you want a lot of children, you need anyway. Think of that, modern-day America. Okay, so the next episode is one I mentioned earlier, Manhunt. And in this one, Troy's mother, Loxana, is on the hunt to get herself a man. <laughs> and it's as cringe as you can imagine. Uh, basically, she has her eyes mostly set on Captain Picard. And it kind of works okay, but she likes to play kind of head games with him a little bit by suggesting that he's having all kinds of naughty thoughts. Anyway, um, the story itself is okay. My particular favorite point is when Picard is just not liking being alone at the dinner with her that she sets up, or under the premise that it's going to be her and him and some of the other guests aboard ships and the other crew, and instead it's an intimate romantic dinner. And she's and he's just like, uh, and she's like, uh huh, uh huh. So, yeah, just from that illustration, I'm sure you can imagine exactly how it's going. So, he says, uh, he taps his communicator and goes, uh, Commander Data, could you please, uh, come here and tell us all about some of these cultural customs? And Data proceeds to come in there and I can honestly empathize as someone on the autism spectrum. He does a mini lecture info dump all about some of the different cultural aspects that he studied regarding all kinds of different things. Then talking about math, then talking about the, the chemical composition of brown dwarf stars. It's a brilliant scene, and Brent Spiner really showcases his acting, as does Majel Barrett and Patrick Stewart. The plot basically doesn't really go anywhere they just kind of resolve it in their own way and she has her little moment to shine and given that this is the show creator and producer's wife this was her chance to really show off her character within the show so it is what it is it it's really fun to watch patrick stewart pretend to be very awkward as this woman blatantly flirts with him and wants to jump his bones. This was also around the time that Patrick Stewart was voted Sexiest Man Alive by People Magazine. The next episode, The Emissary, was written by Richard Manning, Hans Beimler, Thomas Calder, and then the teleplay was done by Richard Manning and Hans Beimler. So, it's a warp episode. Basically, the premise is that a part human, part Klingon ambassador is coming aboard ship and she's going to help the Enterprise work with a ship of Klingons that have been in stasis for several years while uh, floating through space and they're on a hunter-killer mission where they're basically going to reignite hostilities between the Klingon Empire and the Federation. You can see the resolution coming a mile away, because it's exactly what you think. So, this one I remember watching not that long ago as I was preparing for this, and it wasn't that great, but you can totally watch it. It's 
fun enough. The main point is basically to give Worf a love interest of his own who's Klingon, but then we never really see her again up until a little while later. And if you understand a lot of what TNG was about, you'll know exactly where that's going. It's not great. Uh, but as it is, the actual central plot around the sleeper cell of Klingons is actually really good. And how it gets resolution is well acted and uh, everything. Michael Dorn showcases his acting skill really well and shows why he plays Worf so well for both this series and the movies and Deep Space Nine. It's just good. Okay. So, our next episode is Peak Performance, and this one is genuinely one of the best ones of the entire season. Now, I've been picking and choosing which episodes I genuinely thought were worth re-watching, and this one is among them. In this particular one, the Enterprise has a planned war game, essentially, that is going to be against... Uh, a ship of the same class as the Stargazer. We've already used that model before, so why not just bring this one back? Only it's not the Stargazer, it's the USS Hathaway, because this particular design, according to Star Trek canon, was very, very popular back in Picard's day when he was an up-and-coming officer. The design itself is really remarkable because it's a very thick saucer section, and they actually make a point of putting large shuttle bays all around it and having the ship essentially be a shuttle carrier. There's a lot of room for crew, but there's also a lot of room inside for shuttles. Now, they go ahead and get this ship back up and running so that they can do some simulated battles between the Enterprise-D and the Hathaway. This is all under the guidance of a master strategist. That master strategist is a member of a species called the Zakdorn, which I'm surprised has never come back in uh, Star Trek Lower Decks. But the Zakdorn is then is is under the name Sirna Kolrami, which I don't know isn't isn't Sirna Kolrami a really nice uh, cold cut that you put on sandwiches with a little mustard, maybe a little Swiss cheese. I forget. Anyway, uh, but. Kolrami is played by Roy Brocksmith, and this is filmed right around the same time that he was doing uh, Total Recall with Arnold Schwarzenegger and Michael Ironside. So it's genuinely interesting to see him in this role as a very, very different character. Part of the plot involves Riker and Kolrami playing a game called Stratagema, where basically two opponents try and get in as few moves as possible total domination of a series of boards and platforms that are projected holographically. So it's intended as being like this master strategy game similar to chess or something, but it's on three rotating grids and is incredibly awkward to follow just as the viewer. You can imagine how awkward it is when you consider that the game is played by placing um, little tubes on each finger and then you move each finger in order to play the game. <laughs> yeah, it's a convoluted sci-fi future chess far beyond the multi-level chess that we already see 
often from from original series onward into um, next generation. This is this is the next level of super advanced chess. It's really, uh, it, it's it's kind of like a game of dots where you draw the lines and form a square or whatever. Uh, yeah, that's basically what it is. Um, anyway, so as they're playing this war game out, the Enterprise is disabled by the Ferengi who attack. After observing all of this and. And at first, they think that it's just a trick played by Worf because Worf has um, a little hack of the Enterprise computers so that it appears like a Romulan ship is appearing. And they think, oh, it's just an illusion. The Ferengi are, aren't really attacking. We're perfectly fine. And of course, because they used basically little pew-pew lasers instead of full phasers so that they wouldn't actually do damage to one another's ships, they go ahead and say, well, hey, unfortunately, Captain, the, the controls are fused, so we're stuck with no weapons. We've got shields, but those can be worn down pretty badly by the Ferengi. And it's like, of course, because we have to create a worst-case scenario. Well, anyway, this is a notable episode because it's one of the first episodes to feature Armin Shimmerman as a Ferengi. So definitely watch for that particular part of the episode. And as far as I'm concerned, that's the best final episode for this. Because the actual final episode is called Shades of Grey, and it's just a clip show. I'm not even kidding you. It's just all about Riker, and he's been stung by some kind of alien plant, and it's poisoning him, and it's going to destroy his mind, and... In order to help him uh, survive, they have to reconstruct all of his memories from over time. And so we get to see all the Riker moments from over the course of Star Trek The Next Generation, only two seasons in. You're doing a clip show after only two seasons. We could have had fire and blood in place of this, and instead we get a clip show. Yeah. But with that said... Star Trek the second season in Next Generation is really pretty good. It has really fun moments that I think genuinely play out very well, but it has about 50-50 in terms of quality episodes that you can rewatch over and over versus episodes where it's just like, no, don't bother with it, give it a miss. Like, I could actually see watching The Schizoid Man, or I could see watching Unnatural Selection. But some of these episodes genuinely make it problematic to even want to watch them. Measure of a Man is so heavy-handed in its message that it makes it difficult to really enjoy. And when you lay on the message too thick, it's hard to give the story some moments of humanity. It's a good episode for educational purposes, but some of it is really just ham-handed and not really nuanced enough with not enough character moments between different actors playing different characters and it's one of the reasons why uh denise crosby who played tasha yar left the show was because she wasn't getting enough character moments later on and it wasn't really until you kind of got the reins away from some of the producers and let them stop calling a lot of the shots 
that you finally saw a lot of the writers play out the characters with a little bit more depth and roundness and complexity. So what do you think of Star Trek The Next Generation Season 2? Were there other episodes that I kind of uh, steamrolled over that you thought deserved more attention? Were there ones that you thought were really good and, uh, and had great moments to them? Were there particular moments that you want to talk about? Go ahead and leave them in the comments below. Thanks for listening to this retrospective. Bye-bye.